Prospect Lives. Seven Voices on Modern Britain. Men and women, tenants and landowners, old and young, spoke to me about their love of the land and of the wildlife that shares it. If I hadn't sought asylum in the UK, I would not be free to be myself in the way I am now. Making friends as an adult is not so easy. Every married person is meant to be both lover and beloved. It has always been hard for him when I have been unwell. We are, some of us, variable creatures. Welcome to Prospect Lives, a chronicle of disparate experiences of modern Britain by a family of regular Prospect writers, filling us in on what they're thinking about each month. We left our seven writers in meditative mood in February. Actor and writer Sheila Hancock was cherishing her memories of lost friends. Or Rebecca Lawrence, who's a psychiatrist with bipolar, was struggling with memory loss from electroconvulsive therapy. The past came flooding back for our young life, Alice Garnett, when she had a Christmas encounter with her ex-boyfriend. This month, Jason Thomas Fenillier explains how a letter from the Home Office has broken his heart. While Anglican priest, Alice Goodman reflects on the Church of England's recent announcement on blessings for same-sex couples. Our sporting life, psychoanalyst and former England cricket captain Mike Brearley, asks why we find ourselves identifying with sporting stars we have no connection to, like Lionel Messi. But let's begin with Jason, who after eight years in limbo, is facing an uncertain future. January and February lives up to their reputations as cold and depressing months. I returned to Doncaster from Leeds after attending a dear friend's funeral, the emotional turmoil of which triggered an epileptic episode that left me physically spent. I was longing for some much-needed rest. But when I turned the key and unlocked the front door to my flat... I saw amongst the posts an envelope in the Home Office's trademark beige paper with my name on it. I knew from previous experience that the day was about to get considerably worse. As soon as I got into my room, I decided to rip off the band-aid and reveal my fate. On the 22nd February 2022, you made further submissions based on asylum human rights grounds. I am writing to tell you that your further submissions have been rejected, it said. The text was in bold. I paused in silence, taking it in. I've endured refusals by the Home Office so many times that I have become numb. I no longer react with panic or a meltdown. When I've panicked in the past, I've ended up having to spend four days in hospital for an epileptic seizure. I wanted to avoid that this time. Not knowing when a decision will come is nerve-wracking. But I've learned that when it does arrive, the rug is pulled from under you whether you decide to open the envelope or not, granted or rejected. These two words make or break a person. 
my life has been in limbo for eight years and repeated rejection has left me having to prove myself and worth over and over again. At this stage, you'd think I'd get the message. I've been through many rejections from family, friends, co-workers, and from my own native countrymen and women in Trinidad and Tobago. It hurts. I'm not going to lie. Rejection knocks you off balance. I've learned to own my anger, sadness, and the feeling of not being enough. I accept and feel the pain as raw as it is in that moment. Then I transition to hope, because that's something that not even the Home Office can take away from me. What does the latest rejection mean for my future? Peace comes with a lot of goodbyes. And eventually, I may have to say goodbye to the life and friends I've made here in the UK. That's normal. We all have to let go of something or someone in life. But I am not ready to give up the people around me and the work I'm doing here just yet. There are still many people to help and work to be done. As I reflect on why I left Trinidad and Tobago... I am struck by the fact that if I hadn't sought asylum in the UK, I would not be free to be myself in the way I am now. I wouldn't be the person I am today. The social and public discrimination that I suffered there felt like a dog collar on me. At any time, anyone could and did show their bigotry in bullying and even violence. I am not returning to that persecution, nor am I going to live like that again as long as I still draw breath. I'll keep fighting, dear reader, but I know I'm getting closer to the coast and there may be a moment when I have to start a new journey. I realize how much I hate arriving at a destination, transition always, a relief, destination means death to me. So if I could figure out a way to remain forever in transition, in the disconnected, then I could and will remain always in freedom. For Farmer Tom, it's important that the British public don't treat farming like a flyover state. In February, I was invited to give an after-dinner speech at the Wisbeach branch of the National Farmers' Union. The town of Wisbeach is an inland port just a handful of miles from the Wash in the north of Cambridgeshire. Now, to my shame, I've passed by many times without paying it much attention, like plenty of others journeying between the thriving industrialised city of Peterborough and the picturesque coastal villages of North Norfolk. In the US... The states in the middle of the country are sometimes disparagingly called flyover states in the assumption that they are observed only from the airplane window as people travel between the east and west coasts. Despite being near the coast, Wisbeach, together with the surrounding countryside, is the east of England's flyover state. Until this year, I knew little of the town, which is some 32 miles from my farm. Now, I can forgive myself for being unaware of the history, 
but I should have known more of the rich agricultural landscape, part of the fens created by the draining of around 1,500 square miles of marshland that used to reach south beyond Ely and west to Peterborough. The settlement of Wisbeach was first recorded in the year 656, and its name is thought to mean on the back of the River Oosebeck. It is a town that has hosted kings and castles, a port and a prison, and provided passengers for the Mayflower voyaging to the New World. But it's the agricultural magnificence that should have put the town firmly on the map. Wisbeach is the branch of the NFU that produces the most varied array of foods in Cambridgeshire. At their AGM, I met farmers growing typical cereal crops such as wheat for bread making along with barley for beer and animal feed and Maltesers, but also rapeseed for cooking oil and biofuel, and maize for anaerobic digesters producing green energy from plant material. With top-grade peat soils high in organic matter from the former marshland, they also grow potatoes and sugar beet here, plus fruit and vegetables including apples, pears, carrots and parsnips, as well as ornamental plants and bedding plants, poinsettias, roses and gypsophilia. Growing a variety of crops as diverse as this, and there are undoubtedly even more that I've forgotten due to the influence of the G in my G&T, requires immense knowledge. And all this knowledge was in that room. Men and women, tenants and landowners, old and young, spoke to me about their love of the land and of the wildlife that shares it, and a deep knowledge of the soils beyond the scope of textbook learning. However, the feedback that I received during my speech illustrated to me how deeply my fellow farmers feel misunderstood by the wider public. The audience nodded enthusiastically as I spoke of my excitement about the current age of farming, which, though not without its challenges, is a time when technology means we can learn from farmers across the world. But heads bowed when I spoke of my sadness that, despite this, our nation has never been less informed about where its food comes from, with farmers often feeling vilified or ignored. We had laughed and joked throughout the evening, but this is a subject that holds no humour. There is a feeling of despondency about the fly-tipping that is spoiling beloved countryside, hair courses and unruly dogs that terrorise livestock and wildlife, and the rural crime that leaves many farmers feeling less safe in their homes. As I reach the end of my speech, I encourage my fellow farmers to throw open the farm gate by using social media, the parish magazine and letters to officials and members of parliament to get our voice heard by the public and those making decisions. We must share the highlights and hardships of farming life and remind the nation that we are growing food for the industrial cities and the beautiful villages from London to Land's End to Lerwick to London. No, we are UK farming and we are not a flyover state. While Farmer Tom encourages fellow farmers to share their experiences, Rebecca Lawrence is worried that the voices of unpaired carers go unheard. As I drag myself painfully out of my recent depressive episode, I'm struck and touched by how much support I've received from health professionals, friends, family, and most of all, my husband. He is the only one who has been with me consistently, hardly ever complaining, always affectionate. I'm considerably better now, and the other day I asked him, teasing, if he'd put on weight. He looked at me, and then at his midriff, and said, I was comfort-eating, you know, when you were most ill, back in the autumn. For a moment I was struck dumb, and then overcome with shame that I hadn't thought of this myself. Worse, I'd criticised him when I should have shown sympathy. 
It has always been hard for him when I have been unwell. This time we perhaps talked about that more than in the past. I asked him what it was like when I was first ill many years ago and found his answer profoundly moving. He said that it was as though he had lost me, as though the person he knew had disappeared and been replaced by someone else. He had no idea then whether I would ever come back. My illness has perhaps become less cruel to him over the years. He knows now that I will return eventually. But when I am ill, the pain for both of us is still constant, day in, day out. The person who would normally help him with any problem becomes the problem. This time again, his life was turned upside down while I was oblivious. Normally, he would go for runs or extra dog walks to alleviate stress. Instead, he found himself watching slightly more Netflix, drinking slightly more whiskey and sleeping badly. He prepared all the food. I ate nothing for two weeks and little thereafter, so he ate it all. Telling his colleagues was stressful, though they were very understanding. The current trend of flexible working was a boon, but he still had to go out occasionally, either to work meetings or the shops, and he found this very hard because he would mull over what he might find on his return. He also had the difficult task of explaining to our daughters what was happening, although it's probably easier for them to understand now they're older. How could any of us have eased his burden? I include myself because, although there was little that I could have done when ill, as a couple, perhaps, we could have planned better. For instance, I should probably have been admitted to hospital, at least for the first few weeks. It was too much to expect him to take all the responsibility of caring for me. He said that I required constant reassurance, for example, that my face wasn't changing shape. Bizarre, and I can't remember thinking this now. And that he could barely cope with the worry that I wasn't eating. Both he and my psychiatrist knew I didn't want admission, but ultimately it was selfish of me to say no. Admission to hospital only occurs when things are dire, however, and I've been wondering what support could be provided to carers when they are looking after someone at home. The healthcare staff at the hospital have always been very helpful, but the reality is that my husband has minimal contact with them and they never come to our home. He has no background in healthcare himself and so needed reassurance that he was doing the right thing. Many years ago, as a junior doctor, I worked in a psychiatric day hospital that provided care and activities for patients, as well as support and relief for carers. Sadly, it closed many years ago, and current resources within the NHS mean that such units are unlikely to be reopened. But, at the very least, carers should be able to get advice and support when they need it. Better investment in mental health and increased support for patients will also lessen the burden on loved ones. Otherwise, the stress and the deleterious effect on carers' own health may lead to increased suffering and yet more pressure on overloaded services. While Sheila has grown tired of noisy parties, young life Alice Garnett is on the hunt for one during a family ski holiday. I am an only child. Other only children reading this will be familiar with the unique loneliness of family holidays sans siblings. Fortunately, making friends as a child is easy. You propose a game of hide-and-seek and it's a done deal. I have vague memories of the holiday friends I made growing up. Often, they were other only children looking for respite from their parents' grown-up conversations. I am still just about of the age when my dad would take me on holiday, 
and he kindly offered to take me skiing with him and my stepmom in France as January came to a welcome end. It had been a ship month and I was ready to fill my lungs with alpine air and my stomach with European beer. But it meant that I would be, once again, an only child looking for respite from grown-up conversation on a family holiday. My stepmom had learnt to ski as a young adult. I listened enviously as she told me how she and her brother had made the most of the uniquely tacky ski resort nightlife and resolved to do the same. I am not an experienced skier, so I had lessons in the mornings from Monday to Wednesday and the opportunity to meet people my age. On my arrival, I immediately sussed out the other young people in my group. Making friends as an adult is not so easy. Games of hide-and-seek won't cut it. You have to ask questions like, so, what do you do for a living? And explain that, while you live in London, you're originally from some vague part of the UK so as to appear relatable and down-to-earth. Rather than marching straight up to someone and asking if they'd like to hang out, you have to engineer situations in which chatting is possible. I would strategically situate myself within the proximity of one of the Scottish lads in the queue for the chairlifts and embark on the charm offensive. Thankfully, I was able to secure the phone number of one of them. He was there with 11 friends from university, having graduated a couple of years ago. Perfect. A few hours after the lesson, he texted me with an invite to his and his friends' joint birthday celebrations. I was thrilled. When Thursday arrived, I spent the morning in the mountains, enjoying family time, safe in the knowledge that later that day I'd be with people my own age. I briefed my dad on the evening's itinerary, promising to keep him up to date on my movements to soothe his inevitable anxiety. When I got to the bar, it was teeming with Brits stumbling around in ski boots. Locating my new friends in the crowd wasn't easy. I tried to appear confident as I introduced myself to the rest of the party and offered to buy the birthday girl a pint. It was the least that I could do. Making my way through the crowd at the bar, I stood next to a group of disgruntled French boys who were bemoaning the number of Brits in the resort. I kept my mouth firmly shut as Sweet Caroline came on and every Englishman within a 10 metre radius lost their minds, biting down on the urge to scream bum 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 in chorus with the masses. Three pints later, I reconvened with my dad and stepmom for dinner. Besides knocking my cutlery off the table several times, I enacted a five-star performance as a sober and sensible daughter before stumbling down the mountain to rejoin my new friends at another bar. As I approached the door, I was intercepted by a Frenchman who gasped, Mademoiselle? and offered me a cigarette. I took it. We chatted and he asked me who I had come with. When I explained that I was there as a solo agent who had befriended a group of strangers, he was more shocked than impressed. But I was honoured that this close-knit group of friends had welcomed me into their night. Knowing that I would never see these people again meant I could let go of all inhibitions. So while taking in the cold air and a cigarette, I grilled my contact from the group about the dynamics of his inner circle, who was into whom and who had history. My curiosity knows no boundaries. I may have overstepped, or perhaps he just fancied me, but midway through our conversation, he interrupted with a failsafe line. Can I kiss you? 
Maybe because he was the birthday boy, or maybe I just fancied him, but I obliged. It was refreshing to be able to engage in scandalous behaviour without worrying about becoming the subject of gossip. So I threw back vodka cranberries and continued to flirt with reckless abandon until the early hours of the morning. Anglican Company priest Alice Goodman hopes you will be able to invite same-sex couples to the next marriage preparation day in her parish. Until two years ago, when it was stopped by the pandemic, we used to do a marriage preparation day in this benefice. It ran from ten until four, beginning with coffee and biscuits and ending with tea and cake, with a lunch in the middle. Always have a hot pudding, was the advice we religiously followed. So a hot pudding there was, generally a crumble. All the couples being married in the benefice would be invited. In the morning there was a short talk on the changing understanding of marriage over the centuries, as demonstrated through the law, as well as on the intricacies of the ceremony. One couple would demonstrate how each takes the other's hand to make their vows and repeats the words after the priest. Then they'd open their folder of questionnaires from Relate and go off to discover whether they knew what their beloved's favourite colour was and whether they'd ever discussed money or children or where to spend Christmas. After lunch, there would be a panel of married couples, old married couples, middle-aged ones, and people married in the last year or so, to answer questions about marriage and weddings and to talk about their own. There were more group discussions, including, as I recall, the languages of love. That was the one where I learned that my husband's habit of bringing me, unasked, a perfect cup of tea just when I needed it was his way of expressing undying devotion. Which was good, because when I would say, I love you, our Jeff, he'd generally reply, I know, or, "Uh uh-huh. We also discussed rows and how to behave when quarrelling. The church organists and flower arrangers came in to consult about music and flowers. The last exercise of the day was to write a love letter to one's betrothed. We provided paper and pens of every colour of the rainbow. The squire kindly let us use the ground-floor rooms of the manor for this, which added a lot to the day. Couples would look out at the lawns and the nibbling sheep and the distant nature reserve, and we would all feel that the married state was somehow endowed with a bit of extra grandeur. My husband never came to these events, in case you were going to ask. He was separated from his first wife when we met, and seven years later, when we married in the registry office, the Church of England didn't yet marry couples in which one or both partners had a previous spouse still living. Neither of us was ever able to remember what vows, if any, we made. A close reading of all that I've said will suggest to you that I see no theological reason why gay couples shouldn't be able to marry in our parish churches as they can in the United Reformed Church down the road. I see no reason why gay couples who have a civil marriage at the registry office shouldn't have that marriage blessed here, as is already possible in the church in Wales. 
I see no reason why gay clergy shouldn't be able to marry their partners, and every reason why they should. The marriages of my gay friends, colleagues, and former students don't appear to me to be different in kind or quality to my own marriage, or to the marriages I've witnessed and blessed in church over the years. The Church of England has just agreed on what is coyly referred to as a suite of prayers to allow for the blessing of a civilly partnered or married same-sex couple in church. It's not as much as I would have wanted, and, as my traditionalist brothers and sisters fear, I am one of many clergy who think of this development as only the beginning. Every married person is meant to be both lover and beloved. What we say about marriage, what we bless in it, we can say and bless whether the couple are bride and groom, bride and bride, or bridegroom and bridegroom. Our three churches in this parish are looking forward to the day when we can make use of these prayers of blessing, and to the day, soon I hope, when there will be gay and lesbian couples at our marriage preparation day. We hope to restart next year. In the meantime, a church warden will be climbing the Tower of St. Vigors tomorrow. He'll hoist up a big red wooden heart. It'll be visible from half a mile away. I'd wanted to climb up too, but have been advised, he has a pawky sense of humour, that I'm needed on the ground to make sure it's hung straight. Messi's extraordinary skill in last year's World Cup final Messi's extraordinary skill in last year's World Cup final inspires Mike Braley to consider why we become passionate about players we barely know. Zinedine Zidane, the French superstar footballer of the 1990s and 2000s, was the subject of a fine film directed by Douglas Gordon and Philippe Pereno, Zidane, a 21st century portrait. Lasting 90 minutes, the film followed a 2005 Spanish La Liga match between Zidane's team Real Madrid and Villarreal. The camera focused almost entirely on the player himself. It was indeed a portrait of the man, not only of the man as footballer. It revealed a mixture of extreme alertness, speed of reaction and energy, alternating with a sort of laid-back absence from the fury. In the latter state, Zidane would reveal his underlying presence by a repeated little gesture of stubbing his foot in the ground, like a browsing, pawing deer, ready for a dash for safety if a predator appears. But immediately we saw to Zidane the predator, a leopard creeping up on a herd of potential victims, each clawed paw poised, quietly ready to pounce. The film was in a way prophetic of a deep-seated tendency in the man. Near the end of the match, suddenly embroiled in a brawl, he was given a red card and sent off. A year later, this happened again. Provoked by his marker, Marco Materazzi, he lost control, head-butted the Italian and was sent off for the fourteenth time in his career. Notoriously, the context for that outburst was extra time 
in the final of the 2006 World Cup. It was Lionel Messi, the key player in the Qatar World Cup in November and December last year, who reminded me of Zidane, not because of fits of madness, but because of his extraordinary combination of physical electricity interspersed with passages in which he hardly seemed to be bothered with what's going on around him. Messi does not fit one's image of the modern professional footballer. Short, with a low centre of gravity, he doesn't look like a great athlete. As he was very short for his age as a young adolescent, he was prescribed growth hormones. The family could afford them for only a couple of years before his team, Barcelona, picked up the tab. At 35, he's old for a top footballer. He's round-shouldered. My wife commented on how his, his sloping shoulders are just like mine. I said, two great sporting icons, but underneath was slightly hurt. He has a wonderful way of drifting about on the field, especially in the first few minutes of a match, rather like an older man who's wandered into a frenetic game played by the kids, or a cat burglar casually casing a joint before breaking in through the smallest of gaps. He's almost a flaneur, a sort of lounger with time to kill. Yet this impression of detachment alternates with incredible dribbling skill combined with a wonderful touch, delicacy and force in his passing and shooting. He combines the qualities of a great striker with those of a great playmaker. I found myself supporting Argentina for the final in Qatar. The main reason for my sympathy for this temporary identification was Messi. I love his genius, his subliminal knowledge of where everyone is, especially his teammates. In the first twenty or so minutes of the match, he played several delicately incisive passes from an inside right position to left winger Angel Di Maria. And after all his lounging, he turned up in the right place in the six-yard box to score, plus landing two successful penalties. But why do we become passionate for teams or players we hardly know? Why do we find ourselves devastated when they give away a goal? Why so elated when our team scores one? One feature of sport is that there is this sort of identification among viewers as well as players. In our minds, we become the player, we join the team. We adore the beauty, the sublimity of the skill. In the case of Messi, as of Zidane, we love the shifts from restful detachment to ecstatic involvement. In Hamlet, the player king sobs when playing the part of Hecuba. Like Hamlet, we ask ourselves, what's Hecuba to him or he to Hecuba? What's Messi to me or, to be sure, me to Messi? It's all in the imagination. We watch with passionate eyes. We've lived the game. Sorry. We live the game with our present heroes. We celebrate and mourn with them. Until we switch. When Argentina had dominated for about 70 minutes, I began to yearn for a real game, 
for France to come alive. I'd enjoyed France, too, in their close match against England. If the French could get it together and score a goal, then there'd be a real match, not, what seemed most likely, a by now foregone conclusion. I started to back the new underdogs, and they scored. Killian Mbappe, of course. Before we got much further, they had a second. Now I felt for Argentina again. Could they survive these ghastly disappointments? Could they revive? In 1990, Norman Tebbit coined the Tebbit Test for being a real Brit. An immigrant becomes British by supporting the England cricket team. I've shocked some people by failing this test myself. I usually support the England team, but not always. I may support the underdog, and plenty of them had their terrific moments in this football World Cup, or the opposition because I admire an individual's flair or their resourcefulness and courage. We are, some of us, variable creatures, with many strands of identification and allegiance. E.M. Forster famously said, If I had to choose between betraying my country and betraying my friend, I hope I should have the guts to betray my country. Such people go beyond local tribalism. There are drawbacks and risks in this stance. We, the variable ones, are liable to ignore or distort our own sense of belonging. Perhaps we bend over backwards to avoid it. We risk disloyalty, inconsistency, even masochism. We may become sentimental, like a parent who ignores the close-to-hand exclusion of his own children while loudly supporting suffering children on the other side of the world. Charity, our opponents might say, begins at home. We're right to be upset most strongly when our families and friends are suffering. And yet, and yet, imagination and empathy have wings. They soar beyond the local. With many identifications, we belong in many actual and virtual groups. Well played, Morocco and Japan, and well played, Messi. Thank you so much for tuning into our Prospect Lives podcast. Listen now to hear more from our family of writers in April, and tune into our regular podcast, the Prospect Podcast, every Wednesday. If you've enjoyed hearing from our wonderful Lives scholars, escape the echo chamber and grab a copy of Prospect from the newsstand, or go to the website where you can be writing from Joe Isid, the former Permanent Secretary of the Home Office, David Normington, Ethan Zuckerman, and many more. Goodbye, stay safe, and see you next time.